He looked depressed like every day when you see him. Looks like we have an active shooter. Red flag. Red flag. Red flag. There's more coming. That's about 30. That's 30 cops right there. I don't know. It must, there's a school right there. Slow down, you're fine. Well, 51. We have over 100 911 calls into our dispatch center uh, of an active shooter at Dawson High School. Deputies responded within five minutes. There was a semi-automatic handgun that fired multiple shots. Perception. Perception. Perception is reality. Reality. The drama unfolded at Oxford High School outside Detroit. We're in lockdown right now. Teachers and students rushed to barricade the doors. Police disarmed the 15-year-old shooter within five minutes, but four students were killed and seven others wounded, including a teacher. So obviously um, we're here for um, the worst kind of tragedy we've seen across the country and we hoped and prayed it would never come to Oakland County, um, but it has. It's visited itself on our community and it's certainly the first thoughts are prayers for the families and loved ones and friends that have been impacted by this unspeakable and unforgivable event. My heart goes out to the families. This is an unimaginable tragedy. Uh, I just wanted to be here because I think this is a an important moment for us to support one another, to support this community, and um, I want to thank our first responders again. This touches us all personally and deeply and will for a long time. This wound will never go away, and we understand that, but we also want the community to know here for them and we will leave no stone unturned in determining all the things that led up to it and making sure that this investigation is full and complete before it's turned over to hold this individual accountable. Hello there folks and welcome to this very somber 175th episode of Perception is Reality. I am your host Christopher H. Bilbrey. Thank you for tuning in and giving me a little bit of your time. I appreciate each and every time that you click and listen to an episode. As always, I'm going to ask that you share the show with everyone you know. Remind folks that they can find us on all major podcast hosting sites. All they have to do is search for us by name, Perception is Reality with Christopher H. Bilbrey. We can also be found at the home link, which is perception.fireside.fm, as well as you can Google us 
looking for us by name or searching simply for Bilberry Podcast. That's B-I-L-B-R-E-Y Podcast we should pull up. Also, don't forget to have people check us out on Facebook at Christopher H. Bilberry on Facebook or Facebook.com forward slash Bilberry 318. Um, okay, so before we get into the episode, I do want to apologize for how long the intro was. I generally don't like to go that long when it's cut material like that from other sources, but this incident that we're going to be covering, and of course, I'm sure you're all familiar now, we're going to be talking about the school shooting that occurred in uh, the Oxford school system in Michigan uh, just a couple weeks ago from the date of recording. Um, We're going to be talking about this shooting, the timeline of events and what has transpired since the shooting and my thoughts and my commentary on this. School shootings are something that we should not have to deal with and it's a horrible tragedy when parents send children to school or, or grandparents or caretakers send children to school when teachers and staff go to work at schools, everyone should be able to do that and know that it's going to be a safe environment. But we know that living in today's day and age, that that's simply not something that always can be. For whatever reason, this is something that has occurred more and more frequently here in America, and there's a lot of discussion on why this happens, who to point the finger at to blame, what we can do to those people, how we can prevent this in the future, and I do my very best to try to steer away from talking about these incidents when they occur because I don't consider myself a straight news guy. I'm here for commentary and opinion, and I feel like the people who jump in to give their opinion on these things right as they occur tend to do more harm than they do good, and there's the whole debate about the Second Amendment and pro-gun versus anti-gun people, and I'm not going to get involved with all of that uh, in most of these because that doesn't help the situation. Uh, Generally, when someone is talking about an incident like this, it's after the fact, and that does not help that situation. This... School shooting, for some reason, and I don't know if all of you feel it as well, is a little bit different. Something a little different occurred here, and I feel as though the aftermath is a little different. And there's going to be a lot of discussion surrounding how this came to be. There's going to be a lot of discussion on what occurred during the event, and then there's going to be a lot of discussion, obviously, on on what 
happened with charging the the individual and then charging the parents. And so there is a focus on what this means. Is this a political situation? Is this is the uh, prosecutor and law enforcement in this situation? Uh, did they do something here that might uh, change how things happen going forward? And there's a lot to talk about. So that's why I wanted to cover it. I feel like this is a, a different scenario than what we've seen in a lot of other situations. Generally, you'll see the school shooting and then either if if you know, like Columbine, where the shooters took themselves out, or in a lot of active shooter situations, the the shooter will take themselves out. If the shooter is captured by police, they're charged, and that's it, and that's that. In this situation, we saw more than the shooter being charged, and so I want to talk about that. I want to go through the timeline and give you my commentary on this event. So we're going to be getting into that, and I would love to hear your take on my thoughts. So if you hear something that you're interested in, if you hear something that you agree with or that you disagree with, please feel free to message me on Facebook or social media. Feel free to email me at khbilbury at gmail.com or call or text me at 765 546 9796. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but when we get back, we'll be jumping into all of this. Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to the 175th episode of Perception is Reality. We'll be right back. This portion of the podcast is brought to you by Vital Farms, established in 2007. Vital Farms, where honest food is raised. Vital Farms' mission is to bring ethical food to the table. They do everything they can to improve the lives of people, animals, and the planet through food. Whether it's giving the girls year-round outdoor access, supporting family farmers, enabling you to trace your eggs back to the farm, or debunking misleading animal welfare claims, you can can always trust Vital Farms to be where honest food is raised. Their pasture-raised eggs, butter, and egg bites are delicious, ethical food that you do not have to question. Vital Farms, where honest food is raised. Check them out at vitalfarms.com today. All right, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to jump right into this. So most people are probably aware this incident occurred on November 30th, 2021 in Oxford, Michigan. It was a school shooting. Unfortunately, four students were killed. Seven other individuals were shot. Uh, That was six students and a teacher. Uh, This was the deadliest school shooting since 2018 in the United States. And the suspect is a 15-year-old sophomore. I'm going to say his name this one time, and then we're going to move past it. It's been uh, talked about in the media and covered, but I, I do uh, subscribe to the theory that you should not give much credence to the people who carry this out so you don't have copycat 
uh, people that see this as a way to get infamous. Uh, the school shooter's name was Ethan Crumbly, and he was taken into custody without incident the day of the shooting, and he has since been charged as an adult. He was charged with one count of terrorism causing death, four counts of first-degree murder, seven counts of uh, assault with intent to commit murder, and 12 counts of possession of a firearm during the commission of a felony. And he has been arraigned on all of those uh, counts and is now just awaiting the court process. Um, The Oakland County, Michigan prosecutor's name is Karen... McDonald, she is who has been the um, spokesperson from the, her office. Obviously, uh, the the sheriff uh, in Oakland County has also been out and about in the um, in the camera's eye and and has talked to reporters and uh, has made various comments on this. And we're going to be talking about. Uh, the the prosecutor here in just a moment. Um, she is a fairly new prosecutor. Uh, she's not a new attorney. She's been an attorney for a while and has been an elected official for a while, but she is a fairly new prosecutor, and we're going to be talking about all of that in just a moment. But before we get into all of that and we get into a lot of my thoughts on this, I wanted to kind of go over the time frame of what we were looking at and what led up to this and, and what happened directly after. So on Friday, November 26th, four days before the shooting, the father of the suspect, James Crumbly, dad, buys a 9 millimeter Sig Sauer at a gun store in Michigan, and currently, with everything that we're hearing, the father purchased this weapon legally. Everything that he did was legal in the way that he bought the weapon. Now, I want to say, what we have heard now since he purchased the weapon is that he was doing so to give to his child. If that is in fact true, I think that the feds might have some issue with what happened there. That's called a straw purchase, and we can talk about that in a little bit as well. But as far as him buying the gun, like he didn't buy it illegally off the street. Uh, Mr. Crumbly, James Crumbly, was not a felon, and so he was legal uh, to buy a gun. And I know that there were some people that was questioning how that occurred. But the way that he bought the gun, going through the store, filling out the paperwork, everything was legal with that. Now there's a little bit of question about was this a straw purchase or not, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But he did buy the gun on Friday, November 26, 2021. When he bought the gun, his 15-year-old son was with him, and later that day, his 15-year-old son posted a picture to Instagram of himself, the 15-year-old, holding the gun, saying, I just got my new beauty today, Sig Sauer 9mm. 
any questions I will answer. And then the, the 15 year old posted a smiley face with heart eyes. Okay. The next day, Saturday, November 27th, 2021, which was three days before the shooting, the mother, Jennifer Crumbly, posts a, a comment to social media that says, Mom and Sunday testing out his new Christmas present. And what that means was they were at the range and Jennifer Crumbly was shooting with her 15-year-old son this new Sig Sauer that her husband had just bought the day before, and he wasn't there, but the 15-year-old was, and by the mom's post, it sounds as if they were there shooting this new weapon. Now, again, under state law, it would be perfectly legal for Jennifer Crumbly to go shoot a gun that her husband had purchased, okay, if the husband was going to purchase the gun for a gift to his wife, he would have to say in the, in the paperwork that, you know, I'm not buying this for myself, I'm buying this for my wife. Maybe in that since he could have said, I'm buying this, this will be my gun and my wife's gun, and they could have been okay that way. That would, would have been perfectly legal. It would also have been legal for him to buy the gun for himself or buy the gun and, and list it for his wife and for her to go shoot his gun or her gun, depending on whose gun it was in that situation, if the paperwork was legal, there's some question there, and I, I want to open this up um, and, and say that in the state of Indiana, okay, and you have to understand, gun laws are different from state to state. In the state of Indiana, you can have and possess a gun in your home without a gun permit as long as the gun is in your home and you do not carry it out into the world. Now, you could carry it to go shoot at a shooting range, at a gun range, without a gun permit, if you have the gun completely unloaded and in a back part of the driver's compartment where you cannot reach it with the ammunition in a separate place. So if you have the ammunition in boxes in the back and you have the gun in a box in the back and you're driving to the range... You're perfectly okay with that. Michigan has a very similar law in that same way. So um, you can carry the gun from place to place without a gun permit if you're not carrying the gun loaded and like on your hip in a holster or in the console. If you have the gun loaded and in the driver's compartment, you could get in trouble for that. But you can carry the gun without a permit in your vehicle, if you carry it separate from separate from you uh, and unloaded like that, so it would be permissible for someone who is unlicensed to go and shoot a gun that they have for self-defense in their home, but not have a permit. 
I am not 100% sure, and I probably should have looked this up. I, I imagine this is probably out there by now, but I'm willing to say that the Crumbleys probably, because of their beliefs and, and what we're hearing that these people were, were into, they probably had their gun permits. So I'm, I'm willing to say that everything was on the up and up there, but even if they didn't have gun permits they would have been permitted to transport the gun if they did so uh, in in the way that I described. Uh, but so she goes and shoots this with her son, and there are some people that have questions about that. Is it okay for her to go shoot this with her son? And uh, the answer to that is yes. I am a Second Amendment supporter. I, I like guns. I have guns around me, and I am somebody that believes that the way to prevent things like this and to prevent horrible accidents is to teach children the safe way to carry yourself around firearms and to 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 use firearms and that they're not toys and and that you you know never pick them up unless you're intending to target practice or hunt or defend yourself you never point a gun at something that you're not intending to hurt or to kill and that you always treat guns as if they are loaded and you know there's a whole bunch of safety protocol that goes into all of that okay i am someone who in in my prior life experience have had stepchildren and I had guns around stepchildren and we taught the stepchildren, you know, how to be safe around these guns. And I was never worried about this. Okay. I was never concerned because the children had a respect for uh, my ex-wife. They had a respect for me. They had a respect for what we told them and they, you know, they acted appropriate. There was never an issue. And I myself, along with my ex-wife, uh, acted as responsible adults who possessed guns. We kept them up. We didn't just throw them around. We didn't have them out in the living room. We didn't buy guns and hand them over to, you know, our six-year-old children, you know, or 10-year-old or children or, or what have you. We, we locked them up and, and we kept them safe and secure in the home and we talked to the children about them, and and uh, you know it just was it was just normal life. It wasn't anything that you know was a big thing, and and it was something that the kids were you know digging into because they were curious. They weren't curious because we we spoke to them about this, and it's my belief that that's how you have to do things like this. You know, you can you can get a kid interested because you're acting so bizarre about it. You can be like, "Now you should never touch this and this is just to be in here. Don't ever mess with this." If you approach it like that, you might get a kid that is interested, especially if you're talking about boys. You know, there is a difference between boys and girls. I talked to a friend of mine who's uh, you know, a couple 15, uh, 20 years older than I, and she grew up in in a home where it was her and she had a brother or a couple brothers, but it was primarily her and her sisters. 
Um, and they grew up around guns. And she said, you know, there were guns around us all the time, you know, on the kitchen table or, or in the, in, you know, my parents' bedroom. And, and we would have never touched my father's guns. We knew better. We were told that these were not toys and, and we were brought up and, and taught to respect guns and, and we were brought up around guns and we would never have disobeyed our parents or, or done something like this. And that's when I got to talking to her and said, you know, I, yeah, I, I, I can understand that because you had respect for your, your parents and, and it's how discipline and, and how the, the law was handed down in your household. And I, and I agree uh, but then you have to get into that aspect of, well, you know, and there are, I'm, I can't say this because I'm sure that there are girls out there who would be curious. And I know that there are a lot of girls who love guns, but on the whole, you kind of get into a situation where when boys start to grow up, you know, they, they get interested and, and they might get curious and, if you don't work with them and you don't teach them to respect the gun and you don't explain things to them and, and tell them that this is not a toy and if they have questions, come to you to ask them. Don't try to experiment with yourself and, and don't, you know, don't play with this. This is not a toy. Then if you don't do that, you might create a situation where, you know, a, a child could act curious and try to, you know, look at this or, or, you know, examine it, touch it, play with it, hold it when you're not around, if it's not properly put up and that could be disastrous. And that's what you want to make sure does not happen. So it's in my belief that taking kids, especially a 15 year old kid to the range and letting that kid see you shoot, letting that kid see how the gun is loaded, how you handle the gun if you're handling it appropriately and you should be handling it appropriately, and then helping them and allowing them to do the same. There's nothing wrong with that. That is legal. You know, 15-year-old um, is definitely an age that would be permissible to, to be touching firearms. There is nothing wrong with that if it's being done in a safe manner at a shooting range, you know, there's there's nothing wrong with that. So I don't have an issue with that. The issue, in my opinion, is the fact that these parents are with this 15-year-old son and acting as if this is his gun because he cannot technically possess a gun because of his age. He could live in the household with a gun that is his parents, but for his parents to be acting like this is his gun and they're giving this to him and this was bought for him kind of puts a wrong message into his head, and I have a little bit of question with that. Now, there wouldn't be anything wrong with saying, hey, we're buying this gun, and this is mine, and when you are of age, we can pass this gun on to you. There wouldn't be anything wrong with that. But to say, hey, you're 15, and we're going to buy this, and this is your gun, you know, it's not like he could carry that gun anywhere. He wouldn't have a gun permit. He would never be able to get a gun permit at the age of 15. So to put that kind of thought into his head, I just, I have a question about that. And to allow him to 
post that on social media, you know, did they know that he posted that on social media? If they didn't, that's another problem. The parents should know what your children are doing on social media, you know, so that might be a question. But, you know, I have question about what they were doing there. All right, let's move on in the timeline. Monday, November 29th, this is one day before the shooting, he's at school. The 15-year-old is at school, and a teacher sees this young man searching online during school time on his cell phone uh, ammunition, looking ammunition up on his phone, and the teacher is concerned about this. Now, I don't know what makes the teacher concerned. I don't know if he has said other things in the past. This is all going to have to come out at some point. I don't know if there was anything about his behavior that made this seem concerning. But for some unknown reason that we will hopefully learn at some point, She noticed that he was searching ammunition on his phone. She was concerned, and she notified the office. And this um, was deemed to be something that the school should notify his parents of. And again, I don't know what went into making that decision Hopefully someday we will know that information. Was there other instances that led up to this? Had there been other issues at school? We just simply don't know this yet. But the school makes a phone call to his mother and leaves a voicemail. Uh, and and I, we don't know what the voicemail says, but it says, hey, you know, apparently something to the effect of your son was looking up ammunition on his phone today and a teacher saw that. We don't know if the teacher said anything to the young man about this or if the principal or or anyone else said anything uh, to the kid about this. But the, the school teacher told the office, the office called the mother and left a voicemail. What we do know, though, is that the mother then sent a text message to her son at school, and the text message said, LOL, I'm not mad at you. You have to learn not to get caught. So that's the only text message from that interaction that we know of at this time. That leads me to believe there may have been other text messages, but that's the only thing that we are hearing at this time. Uh, hopefully we will learn more about this because that's kind of out of place if for her to just say, LOL, I'm not mad at you. You have to learn to not get caught. I would assume that she talked to him about the voicemail that she received and... <clears throat> You know, um, who knows what further they talked about. Hopefully, we will learn that. But here again, along with teaching this kid, hey, this is your gun, we got you, and them, you know, may or be or maybe not being okay with him posting on social media, look at my new beauty. Um, this kind of message that this mother is sending this kid in my opinion, is questionable. You know, there were things that I did when I was younger and growing up that maybe my dad wouldn't have seen as being serious. 
Uh, but there are some things that, you know, if the school would have called my parents about that my dad wouldn't have thought was funny. And I just, I think that this is kind of a, a, a strange text depending on, I guess, a couple factors. What we will find out could have led up to this and behaviors um, that, you know, the, both the school and the parents would have been uh, aware of. I just think that this is kind of a strange text message. Maybe maybe we'll hear more about it and it won't seem so strange. But now, given all that we know, this seems kind of like a strange response from the mother. Um, okay, so we now know, and we didn't at the time, but later that same Monday... When Ethan gets home from school, Ethan recorded uh, a couple videos on a, a cell phone or a device at home in which he discusses killing students. And we know this because the sheriff's department searched the home, found this video or, or the couple of videos, and has released that information. That video or the videos was not posted to social media and no one was aware of those videos until after the fact but he did make a video my question is was this video kind of like his quote unquote note did he make this and leave it behind did he make plans on posting the video but he just didn't you know it'll be interesting when more information about this video or videos is made known to the public, um, you know, in what kind of mind frame was uh, he in when he made this? What was the point of the video? Did he mean to delete it, but he just didn't? You know, I, I'm kind of interested in in what that's going to look like. But, you know, again, this is all stuff that we won't know until, you know, I presume it goes to trial. So... That closes off Monday. Tuesday, November 30th, the day of the shooting. <clears throat> he goes to school, and a teacher at the school finds a note on the young man's desk, and the note alarms her. She was so alarmed that she took a picture of it on her cell phone. I, I don't know if that's something that they're taught to do. I don't know if I don't know why she did that. I don't know why she didn't. Um, you know, confiscate the note. I don't know in what way she found the note. You know, maybe she just saw it over his shoulder as he was drawing. I, I don't know. You know, we'll have to learn that information as this goes along again. But she took a picture of this note, and the, the, the note was a picture that he was drawing, and it had some words on it. And the note, in the way that she took the picture, uh, said the following... Quote, the thoughts won't stop. Help me. There was then a bullet drawn with the words blood everywhere uh, above it. And uh, there was a person who was drawn that he drew on the note. And the person seemed to be shot and bleeding. There was then a laughing emoji with heart eyes and the words, my life is useless quote, unquote, and quote, unquote, the world is dead. Now, I agree. If I would have seen this in class, 
if this is something that I would have walked up and, and witnessed a student drawing, or if I would have noticed this on the floor, fell out of someone's backpack, or on a student's desk, yeah, it would have been alarming too. Uh, you know, I don't know... I, I don't, you know, again, we don't know if this is kind of commonplace for this kid, if if he had other instances of this, or if this had been building. I'm sure that this will come out in trial, but that does seem rather uh, alarming. I it, We don't know in what way that teacher notified the the office did she at that time walk the student down i i feel like that did not happen because what we hear later on apparently something happens because the student is not i think with that teacher anymore and at some point that teacher notifies the office okay the office then decides to call the parents in for a meeting and wants to have a meeting with the parents, with the teacher, and with the student. So they call the parents in uh, for a 10 a.m. meeting. So if all this has gone on, this is happening in the first early hours of the school day because they call the parents in for a meeting at 10 a.m. At that point, when the parents arrive, the student is brought down to the office with his backpack. And now they do mention that, and that has been mentioned in all of the reports that we've seen, that the student was brought to the office with his backpack. And a school counselor asks the student for the drawing. And when the student hands the drawing over... The drawing has been messed with. The drawing is now not the same as it was when the teacher took the picture. That's why I have the question about when the teacher sees this drawing, you know, she was alarmed and she took the picture and she notified the office. But did she not right then stop and, and take this kid to the office or, or notify the office? Like, I, I'm interested in what the protocol is. I'm interested in, you know, why she took the actions that she took. Did she feel alarmed but safe enough to allow that kid to leave and walk the halls and go to another class? Or did she leave and go down to the office and leave the kid? I, I'm just interested in what occurred in this situation because I, I'm, I'm very interested in the fact that the kid had enough time to edit the picture or, or know that he needed to edit the picture. How did that occur? How did the kid know that he needed to edit the picture? Because when the student pulls it out of his backpack, there are parts that have been scratched out. His parents are shown the drawing, and I would imagine they show the parents a picture of the drawing before it was edited as well. I would hope so. We don't know that. But I guess that will be something that we will learn later on, or that's something that I would like to know the answer to. Were the parents presented the original picture of the drawing and the picture as it was then edited, or what happened at that point? But uh, apparently when the parents and the school administrators saw the drawing at 
that point in the office, there were parts that were scratched out. And uh, then a discussion was had. We don't know what the you know points of the discussion were, but at some point in the discussion, the parents were told they had 48 hours to get their son into counseling. Now, I don't know why. I don't know if that's per state law, if that's per the school's protocol. Uh, I'm hearing a lot of people asking, you know, what was the magic time frame of 48 hours? What made 48 hours the time frame here? Um, I, you know, we don't know. We, we hopefully will learn this. In, in my opinion, I would have said, you know, we need to get this kid into counseling now, not in two days from now. Um, but again, you know, uh, with COVID and everything, who knows? I'm not 100% sure what all went into play there. Hopefully, we will learn this. And then this is where it really starts to get strange for me. The school wants to send the child home with the parents, and the parents resist this. The parents are like, no, he needs to go back to school. You know, it's going to be interesting to find out in what way this was resisted. Were they like, no, school's important. He should be here in school and be learning. Or were they like, we don't want to take care of him or we're at work and we don't want to mess with him. You know, in what way did they resist this? I, I, I can't I can't believe this. And, and they are going to have some... Uh, you know, questions to answer here, in my opinion. This is going to have to be addressed. Why did the school not force this? When the, when the parents are saying, no, we don't want to take him, if the school was worried, if there was a concern here, whatever made the school determine that he shouldn't finish out the remainder of the school day, why did the school not stick with that? I understand that you have parents saying, for whatever reason, that they think the kid should stay in school, they don't want to take him, whatever goes on there. But if the school got to a point where there was enough concern that they felt the student should leave, why didn't they stick to that sentiment? What made them change their mind? You know, did they feel for the kid's safety if he went home? Was that a concern? You know, if that's a concern, I feel like we should know that. Or did they let the parents push back on them? I'm very interested in this because if the, if the school felt that there was a, a need to protect the student or protect other students from each other, the student versus the other students, or vice versa, if the school felt like there was a need uh, to protect this kid from himself, I, you know, okay, I get it. But for whatever reason, the school made the determination he should leave and not finish out the school day. Why did they allow the parents to push back on that? You know, if the school made the determination that he needs to seek counseling and he has 48 hours to do it, by the way, we want him to leave today. Why did the school not stick with that? What occurred? What, what went on in that meeting that changed that? Then the other thing that I am very curious about is the people actually in the meeting. 
What we're hearing as it sits right now is it was school administrators like principal, guidance counselor, maybe a superintendent. I'm not really sure, but but definitely principal, assistant principal, guidance counselor, uh, maybe a teacher, a couple teachers, the parents and the student. Why was the school resource officer, the police officer that is assigned to the school, why was the officer not present or not at least around in the general vicinity when this was going on. I find that to be interesting um, because as it sits right now, uh, we're hearing from law enforcement that their school resource officer was not aware of this at this point. I think that that is very interesting and that is going to have to be uh, you know, explain the way why why that school resource officer wasn't a part of this meeting. So for whatever reason, the school lets the parents leave without the student, and they send the student back. They don't search him or his backpack or his locker, which they could clearly do. It is my opinion from being a student in school who attended school, that the school could search his locker at any time, and if he chooses to carry a school a school backpack into school, if he chooses to carry a backpack into school, then the school can search the backpack at any time. You could always choose not to carry a backpack. But if you do choose a backpack, the school can search it at any time. Why did the school not search his locker or the backpack before sending him back to class? They wanted to send him home. That didn't work for whatever reason. Why did they not search the backpack? When they sent him back to class... Keep in mind, they didn't want him to go back to class. They wanted him to leave. But when that doesn't work, they just send him back to class without looking at him, without without watching him, without alerting the school resource officer, hey, you might want to keep an eye on this kid. No further precautions were put into place. I'm very curious as to why that occurred. At 12.51 p.m. on Tuesday, November 30th, 2021, this 15-year-old student walked into a bathroom with his backpack, and then just a few short seconds later, he walks out of the bathroom, only this time he doesn't have his backpack. He now has the 9mm Sig Sauer in his hand. And apparently, we're hearing from law enforcement, he had uh, around 30 rounds of ammunition. Uh, apparently, he had a couple, uh, you know, that would only be like three magazines uh, or so, so two to three magazines loaded. And he systematically walked down the hallway shooting kids and, and uh, staff at the school. Um, he shot and killed three students there at the school. A fourth student died the next day. Six other students were shot, and one teacher was shot and wounded. And those other students and teacher were taken to the hospital and are in various stages of recovery. Within minutes 
of this occurrence, 911 receives many different calls, and deputies arrive at the school and take the 15-year-old into custody without incident. When news of this active shooter situation at the school breaks, okay, keep in mind, the school has released at 12.51, he walks into and out of the bathroom with the gun and starts shooting just roughly right around 12.51 p.m. When this information is starting to break, almost 30 minutes later, at 1.22 p.m., Jennifer Crumbly texts her son and says, Son, don't do it. The incident was over by then. Okay? It was over by the time she had texted that. And she doesn't know that. She's just trying to do whatever she can, I guess, at this point. 15 minutes later, at 1.37 p.m., Mr. Crumbly, his dad, calls 911 to report that the 9mm Sig Sauer handgun was missing and that he believes his son might be the active shooter. The gun, dispatchers were told, was kept unlocked and in a drawer in the parents' bedroom. Now, where the gun was actually kept in the house, we will have to determine that when it goes to trial. Did they keep this in their bedroom? Is that something that he just told dispatchers? Did the kid actually keep it in his bedroom? Was it just laying around in the house? We'll have to determine that when we go to court and what we hear at that point. Who knows? But as as he stated at that time, it was kept in an unlocked drawer in his bedroom. Okay. Um, then on Wednesday, December 1st, which is a day after the shooting, as I stated, the fourth student passed away. Ethan was charged as an adult just, you know, 24 some hours after the shooting at 15 years old. This means he will be kept in the jail with the adult offenders. It means he will be treated as an adult per all of the sentence guidelines when he goes to court, and he will not be in the juvenile system. Uh, this crime is heinous enough. Uh, he is at an age where I believe charging him as an adult was the right thing to do. What's interesting about this is at that point, when the news is all talking about this and the various talking heads are all talking about this, we start to hear instantly people asking if others will be charged. Will the parents be charged? Will the school be charged? And um, that's a common statement which is made when anything like this happens. People are always looking to blame others uh, when something like this happens. And a lot of times, I think that that is, it's too much of a stretch. And it's just people are looking to try to explain things away, and, and, and they're foolish when they say that. In this situation, I started agreeing almost instantly when hearing the information as it was coming out that, yeah, in this situation, I felt like the parents 
could possibly uh, share charges in this situation. So uh, on Friday, December 3rd, James and Jennifer Crumbly were formally charged by the prosecutor's office with involuntary manslaughter. Per their prearranged agreement, they did not show up to be arraigned. A $10,000 reward was put in place for them, and an arrest warrant was issued for their arrest. And they were arrested in Detroit the next day, Saturday, December 4th, 2021. And they were then taken to jail and processed. And at their arraignment, they both entered not guilty pleas. Their 15-year-old son, the shooter in this incident, also entered a not guilty plea on all of his counts, and that's pretty standard in a situation like this. So, now the suspect that committed this heinous crime, he has been arrested and is charged. He is awaiting his day in court. His parents have also been charged. They've been arrested. They're now awaiting their days in court. My question is, will we see other charges stemming from this? I'm certain that we will see civil lawsuits filed, but will we see further criminal charges? Who could be charged and what could they be charged with? We'll talk about all of that and a little bit of my thoughts on all of this in just a few moments. First, we need to take a quick break. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to the 175th episode of Perception is Reality. I'm Christopher H. Bilbrey. We'll be right back. What can give you a competitive edge in today's red-hot housing market? Rocket can. That's because Rocket Mortgage can give you a verified approval. It could help your offer stand out. Rocket technology provides a rock-solid verification of your income, assets, and credit, giving sellers greater confidence in you. Go to rocketmortgage.com or call us today at 8338-ROCKET. A verified approval is based on an underwriter's analysis of your individual financial information, appraisal, and title report. Call for cost information and conditions equal housing under license in all 50 states and MLS consumer access number 3030. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to this 175th episode of Perception is Reality. I am your host, Christopher H. Bilbrey. It's great to be with you. I want to thank you for giving me a little bit of your time. Of course, we are talking about the active shooter, the school shooting in Michigan. This happened on November 30th. And I want to say that I feel like this active shooter situation, this school shooting is being handled differently than most other active shooter or school shootings that we are familiar with. Most other situations like this occur, and yes, the news goes crazy trying to put forward information, and you have talking heads that speculate, but we really don't get a lot of information from law enforcement they hold most of their cards you know close close to the vest they they keep all the information back and i understand why you know coming from a law enforcement background during an investigation you don't want to release information you have to hold that because of the investigation then you have to hold that information because of trial that makes perfect sense but if you look at situations like this in the past, hell, years later, we don't know 
a lot of information. I mean, I, I talked about two other active shooter scenarios here that either happened at the end of last year or early on in this year. The, the one that happened in uh, Colorado in the supermarket and the incident that occurred down in Florida, Georgia, where the guy was shooting up the Asian um, massage parlors. And look how long ago both of those situations were, and we know very little about what occurred there and the ongoing investigation and what it revealed. We know very little information, and that, I feel, stifles how these can be looked at and how how this can be stopped in the future because we don't get a sense of what happened. It happens... And then the talking heads and the news rush to put all the information out and they politicize it and they use it, you know, whichever way they want to use it. They use it to condemn guns or they use it to prop up guns and the left and the right do their thing with it. And then it just kind of goes away and everybody moves along until the next one. I feel like at this point... This early on, we know quite a bit of information about the investigation and what occurred, you know, within the few days leading up to the shooting. And it can help us make decisions. I'm hearing a lot of people question this prosecutor and whether it was right for her to charge the parents. I'm hearing people say, well, what about personal responsibility? And I'm generally one of those people that will say that. You know, you don't charge the the maker of the fork and the knife because you're obese. You don't charge the car manufacturer or the car salesman because he sold the car to the person who commit a hit and run or that killed someone in an OWI. All right, I'm one of those people that say you cannot charge the gun manufacturer or the gun store because they sold a weapon to somebody who then used that weapon to commit a crime. All right, I'm very, very outspoken in that. But when you're looking at this situation, first and foremost, you have to remember this 15-year-old suspect is different than a 45-year-old man. Of course, you're not going to charge the parents of a 45-year-old man for his crimes. But when you have a 15-year-old child who was living in his parents' home, who was given this gun, you know, the feds are going to have to look at, was this a straw purchase? You can buy a gun. And you can sell a gun. What you cannot do is you cannot go to a gun store and purchase a gun claiming that you're purchasing it for yourself knowing that you are giving it to a person that cannot possess a gun. And a 15-year-old cannot possess a gun. Period. So did the parents put the tools into this kid's hand and not deal with what he had going on psychologically, I think that the argument can be made for that. I don't think that we're seeing some political hack here that's trying to do something to disarm 
the constituents in her area or disarm America. She is a Democrat prosecutor, okay? Yep, she's a Democrat. I understand that. But she is a local-level official. She's only been prosecutor since January 1st of this year. She took office as prosecutor January 1st, 2021. Prior to that, she served as a circuit court judge in Oakland County, Michigan, from January 2013 until April of 2019. So she held the seat as a judge for a while, and the case could be made to go back and look at what happened in her court to see if she tries to legislate from the bench, you know, to see if she is an activist or not, you know, and I've not done that. That can be done at some other point, but I don't see what she's doing here as being radical and being someone who's trying to disarm citizens. She's simply saying that as a gun owner, you have a responsibility. I am as pro-Second Amendment as it gets. And I agree, I have a responsibility to make sure that my guns don't wind up in the hands of someone they should not wind up in. Play cut number one from Karen McDonald, the prosecutor's press conference. We have got to address responsible gun ownership in this country and in Oakland County. Responsible gun ownership, including the security of a gun, is an absolute imperative to protect our community today and in the future, and those who do not do that should be and will be held accountable. That does not seem like an activist to me. That seems like someone who is intelligent and understands the seriousness of owning a gun and what a gun can do if it is in the wrong hands. And listen, she's not blaming the gun. She's not talking about how horrible or how evil the gun is or the damage that the gun can do. She's talking about the damage that the hands holding the gun can do. And I agree with that 100%. What she says there is spot on. Play cut number two. Owning a gun means securing it properly and locking it and keeping the ammunition separate and not allowing access to other individuals, particularly minors. We know that. And we have to we have to hold individuals accountable who don't do that. I agree with that. Again, I agree with that 100 percent. However, the question then becomes the other individuals in this scenario, principals, guidance counselors, teachers, who, in my opinion, have a professional responsibility to students to this student who who was the suspect, but they do have a responsibility to make sure that he, while in their care, doesn't hurt others or himself. Do they find themselves in a situation where they can possibly be facing charges because of things that they did or moreover things that they didn't do that contributed to this horrible event? I say if the parents were in a situation and they were in the absolutely in a situation where they find themselves in a place where they can face charges, I think I think it has to at least be a strong possibility that others see charges 
resulting from this as well. And I want to listen to the next cut from the prosecutor from her press conference. And we're actually going to listen to two cuts. And it's going to show you why I believe that at least during the press conference at that point in the investigation, she, in my opinion, is thinking that there might be others that will find themselves charged as well. And when I say others, I mean people from the school. Listen to what she says when she's talking about charging the parents. Cut three. I want to be really clear that these charges are intended to hold the individuals who contributed to this tragedy accountable and also send a message. So she wants to send a message, but she wants to hold the individuals that contributed to this because obviously we have the actor, the, the, the 15-year-old shooter who's the suspect who did this. But in her mind, there are others that contributed to this, obviously the parents. But I don't think we can look at the information that we know at this point and say that there were other folks that contributed to this. Listen to what she says in cut four. Any individual who had the opportunity to stop this tragedy should have done so. The question is, what did they know and when did they know it? Shoo-wee, that sounds very much like she's talking about individuals from the school level and look it can't get pinned on law enforcement because hell the school didn't even include their resource officer and so law enforcement wasn't involved it's strictly the school personnel at this point what's their policy when they have somebody that they are worried about to the level that they they make two notifications down to the principal's office and that the principal's office, the administration makes two notifications to the parents, one on Monday, one on Tuesday. And we're talking about weapons, ammunition, and a note that says, you know, my, I, I can't stop the thoughts. There's blood, bloody bodies and bullets. What is the policy there? What's the point of having the SRO if not to be involved in a situation like this? Let's hear what the prosecutor has to say about that very same note. Play that cut now. The facts of this case are so egregious. Reading this document, looking at it, reading the words, help me, with a gun, blood everywhere. This doesn't just have impact me as a prosecutor and a lawyer. It impacts me as a mother. The notion that a parent could read those words and also know that their son had access to a deadly weapon that they gave him is unconscionable. And, it, and I think it's criminal. I, I, it is criminal. Who else has criminal culpability in this? That becomes the question. After the prosecutor got done reading her statement, she allowed the press to ask questions. And one of the reporters there asked about the thoughts of the family's uh, that were affected by this, basically the victims' families. And listen to a couple statements that the prosecutor made. This first one is about what the prosecutor expects people to do in situations where they can stop something like this. Play that cut. I expect parents and everyone to, to have humanity and to step in and stop a potential tragedy. Parents and everyone. I'm telling you... 
the school administrators and the teachers and those involved at, on the professional level at the school, they they better start thinking about what's coming their way. I, I, I'll be very surprised if we don't see anything like that. Maybe we won't, but I'll be shocked. I, I'll be honest. I just don't, I don't know how we, we won't see something like that. Uh, this next cut, listen to what she has to say when she's asked by a reporter about what the parents of the victims in this situation would would like to see or how they're thinking or feeling. They will want anyone who had the opportunity to stop this from happening to have done it. And we know that that didn't happen. We know that there were teachers who were worried about this young man because of ammunition and because of very scary-ass drawings and who knows what other things that we don't know about yet, okay? Anything in this young man's past, all right? They were worried enough to take pictures of what he was drawing and to notify the office and to notify the parents and to call the parents in. And the school wanted this young man to seek counseling, within 48 hours, whatever that magic number is for, and the school wanted this young man to be taken away. They were that concerned, okay? But, but, that's where it ended. Now, the parents are charged because, yes, they're with this kid all of the rest of the 20-some hours out of the day that he's not in school, and they bought the gun and put the gun in his hand. Again, was that a straw purchase? I don't know. Matter of fact, let's listen to that real quick. One of the reporters asks about the possibility of charges resulting in a straw purchase. Now, the state prosecutor wouldn't charge that. That is a federal crime. Let's listen to the cut where she's talking about that. I think that's cut six or cut seven. I believe that uh, the facts probably indicate that that's the, the, the result, but that would be a federal charge, and, and if, if that's appropriate to to make that, then I'm, I'm confident that they will. Now, that would be a charge against the father, not the gun store or anyone else. That would definitely be a charge against the father, but that just lets me know that there are a lot of other moving parts here. And it lets me know again why I don't think that this is just over as it sits right now. All right, moving on. The reporters keep kind of hammering on what the school knew, when the school knew it, and about the SRO and, you know, kind of all of that as well. I think because, you know, it's definitely a, a big question mark and everyone's really puzzled why this kid was allowed to go back into school after all this craziness and it was just like, okay, no big deal. So listen to the prosecutor's comment when they ask, uh, you know, just more pressing questions about why nothing more was done at the school, which is my question. I've stated what was known to the individuals. Meaning the individuals at the school. What the search indicated in ammunition, what the document, I, I, I stated every single sentence that was on that document. So I, I suppose you should draw your own conclusion. The conclusion I draw is that there was absolute reason to believe this, this individual was um, dangerous and disturbed, and I'll leave it at that. Play the next cut about him going back to the classroom. I'm not going to give you a political answer, and I'm not going to cover for anybody, and I'm just going to say what I think, and that is he should not 
have been allowed to go back to that classroom. And there we have it. I mean, yeah, that's the bottom line. He should not have been allowed to go back. The school wanted him to leave school for the day, and the parents said, no, we don't want to take him. We think he needs to go back to school. I don't know what happens in that situation, but the school has the overall responsibility. That's like you get kicked out of school for fighting, and they say, okay, this is your third time. We're expelling you. Your parents don't get to say, nope, you're not expelled. You still get to go here. The school can put their foot down and say, no, you're not coming back in this building. If the parents say, no, we're not going to take him home. We think he needs to stay here at school. That's great. But the school has the responsibility to protect him from himself and from anyone and everyone else. But they also have an obligation to protect anyone else and everyone else from him. It's their school building. They get to make the call at the end of the day. They can say, no, he is not going to be permitted to come back and go back to a class and be around others, around students, teachers, and administrators and staff until he gets some help and until we get a note and something signed off on from a doctor or from a counselor, we are not taking that responsibility. And if the parents say, well, we're still not going to take him, then the school calls CPS or calls the police or whatever. They get their SRO involved or whatever they've got to do. But the school doesn't just say, no, we're not going to take him. We think that this needs to happen. If they have a policy in place that if A happens, then number one needs to happen, and that happened in this situation, and they felt that he needed to seek counseling within 48 hours, which is what they told the parents, and they wanted the kid to leave school, and the parents say, no, we're not going to take him. We think it's important for him to be here, or we're lazy, we don't want to deal with him, or whatever they said. We don't know that fact. We don't know what was said, why the school let him him stay. We don't know what the parents said, but anything other than, yes, we'll take him. This is our responsibility. The school should have put their foot down and said, that's fine, but he can't stay here. He's not going to stay here. He needs to get into psychological help. He needs to get in and talk to someone, and we need that per our rules and regulations, per our policy or whatever. And if the parents don't want to do the parents' job, then the school, as mandatory reporters, can call CPS and do whatever. I don't understand why the school just bows down and says, well, we don't want him to go here until he's seen by a doctor. You've got 48 hours to get him into some kind of counseling and we think you should take him with you. And they're like, no, we don't want to. And the school says, okay, well, we'll just take him. I think that the school, I think that they failed their responsibility to him and to all of the other students and to their faculty when they did that. And that needs to be examined. What went on there? One of the reporters asked about the meeting with the parents and the school and the shooter, and they asked about the backpack because it was stated in there that when he came down to the meeting, his backpack was brought to the meeting, and they asked if the parents asked him about the gun. Do you have the gun on you? Which, that's a really weird question. Why would you ask this kid that? Because he shouldn't be possessing a gun. 
gun. But I understand now with what we know that maybe they would have thought that would have been a thing to ask. That being said, yes, the parents should have, if they would have been people in the right mind, looked through his book bag. But let me be very clear. If the parents didn't do that because they sat there and see their son in front of them, then the school sure as hell should have. And why the school did not look through his book bag and search his locker before allowing anything else to occur, I have no idea. I'll, I'll stretch this to say that had the law enforcement officer in the building been present, he might have done that right away. It could have been a safety issue for those sitting in that very meeting. If that kid had that gun on him while they were sitting there, what stopped him from pulling that gun out and shooting the principal and the people in the room? Maybe his parents, who knows? With what we don't know about this kid's psychological condition, we don't know what was liable to have happened. And the fact that he was not looked at in this manner, given what we know, with what was on the piece of paper, the body, the bullet, the thoughts won't stop, I'm, I'm dead to the world, whatever, whatever he's saying at that time. And with the fact that he was looking up the ammunition, with the fact that the parents knew that he had recently got this gun that he thought was his, that they apparently were giving him, why didn't anybody there think that maybe the backpack should be looked through or the locker should be searched? Maybe the parents don't do that. Where was the school authorities. Where was the principal? Where was the teacher? Where was the guidance counselor on searching this kid's backpack? A reporter asks the prosecutor that and listen to the prosecutor talk about what happened before the kid went back to class. So remember, the school says we want him to get counseling within 48 hours and we want him to leave. And the teachers say, you know, that's what we want. And the principals say, that's what we want. And the parents say, no, we think it's best that he goes back to class. Then listen to what happened. Listen to what the parents didn't do. And when you hear the prosecutors say what the parents didn't do, keep in mind that the school officials didn't do this as well, and the school officials were responsible for what she says here as well, in my opinion. Play that cut. Both James and Jennifer Crumbly failed to ask their son if he had his gun with him or where his gun was located and failed to inspect his backpack for the presence of the gun, which he had with him. James and Jennifer Crumbly resisted the idea of their son leaving the school at that time. Instead, James and Jennifer Crumbly left the high school without their son. He was returned to the classroom. He was returned to the classroom. So the parents didn't search his bag. The parents didn't search his locker. The school didn't search his bag and the school didn't search his locker and the kid was was sent back to the classroom and we don't have any information on what occurred from there until we find out that at 12:51 he starts shooting kids and faculty and that's absolutely asinine the meeting was at 10 o'clock we don't know how long the meeting lasted I'm sure they do and that will come out let's say the meeting lasted an hour an hour and 50 minutes later 
and we have the worst school shooting on United States soil since 2018. This is unfathomable to me. I understand that the parents might have been complete screw-ups and idiots, and maybe they're criminals. Who knows? We'll find out what goes on with them as this goes on. The school had a responsibility to this kid and to all of the other kids. And the fact that the school didn't act is absolutely asinine to me, and it makes me angry, and it should make you all angry. It should make everyone in Michigan angry. And let's listen to the prosecutor talking about being angry. Play that cut. I'm angry. There, there were a lot of things that could have been so simple to prevent. And yes, there was a perfectly executed response, and, and he was apprehended immediately, and, and we have great law enforcement and, and good training. But I said before, four kids were murdered. And, and, and then seven more injured. So, so yes, I think we should all be very angry. We should be very angry. And answers should be given. And we should get those answers sooner rather than later. Let me tell you something that should make folks even more angry. Since this, since this press conference, since the suspect has been charged since the parents have been charged, and since this investigation continues. What we now know is the school system has told the state's attorney general's office, we do not want you coming in and investigating the policy and what went wrong here. We are going to have our own outside hired private security firm do that. The state's attorney general's office offered to come in and investigate the the policies here and and what happened and and what should have happened but the school instead of wanting to get to the bottom of this has wanted to do what it could do to protect itself to try to cover its ass because at this point they're more concerned about the fallout and about the negativity and about the dollar signs that they're going to have to fork over in all of the civil suits they're more concerned with covering their ass than saying this is what we did wrong and this is how we will never allow this to happen again. Okay? They can't undo what has happened. It's already done. But they should step up and say, we will do whatever we can to get to the bottom of this. And if that means having the state's attorney general's office coming in and looking into this, then that's what we'll do. But to tell the state's attorney general no... I've got a problem with that, and the state's attorney general has a problem with that, and I think it makes the school look bad, and I think the school knows it makes them look bad, and I think that there are school officials that should be answering some really tough questions. In the final cut that I want to play for you, we hear the prosecutor talking about how this situation was premeditated. She's answering a question about charging the suspect, and she's talking about the fact that in order to charge the way that 
She did. It needed to be premeditated. And after reviewing all of this, there's no way that one could look at this and tell that this was not premeditated. In my opinion, that tells us all that we need to know. That means with her looking at all of the facts that she knows, things that we don't know at this point, we will hopefully know sooner rather than later when this goes to trial or whatever happens. What that means is if this was as premeditated as she's making it seem, then that means everyone surrounding the suspect should have been able to see the writing on the wall. And I know that that's very hindsight is 2020 of me, but let's just face this. Now seeing that the school is circling the wagons and not letting the attorney general in to do the, to do the review and the investigation, that lets me know that they know that there was an issue here. And I think because of that, that prosecutor Karen McDonald needs to push this as hard as she can. And I do not believe that she is a political hack. I don't think that this is some kind of political activism. I think that she is doing the right thing. I think that this has has a real possibility of setting some precedent here. Now, I'm not saying in every case you're going to be charging all these other people because one person did it. Personal responsibility has to be the way of the, the world, in my opinion. Common sense says that. But... Each case has to be looked at independently. And when you have situations where there are others, parents, friends, co-workers, teachers, doctors, whoever, that put themselves in a position to cause someone to do something this horrendous or don't do things to stop a person from doing something this horrendous when they're in a position of power and authority to do that, well, then they need to be exposed and they need to feel the wrath of of what comes their way. And I feel that the prosecutor is acting right. I will be disappointed if there are not further charges. I will be disappointed. And I will be disappointed if there are not people lining up to sue the school civilly because that is a way that they can punish the school. I am not a sue-happy person. I don't like that. I know I've been involved with two federal lawsuits. They were two very strange situations. I am not a sue-happy person. I do not like how litigious America is, but in this situation, that is one way where you can say, Look, you had fault here. I'm telling you. The school or various folks in the school are at fault here. The bag was not searched. They did not put their foot down with allowing the kid to come back to school. They let him go back without ever notifying the SRO. They didn't even say, hey, SRO Jim... By the way, we just had this kid in here who was writing this horrible note with dead bodies and bullets on it, saying the voices won't stop, the thoughts won't stop, looking up ammunition. We 
we said that he needed counseling and we needed to send him home and the parents said no, we've sent him back to Mrs. Jones' third period history class. You might want to keep an eye out on him. They didn't do anything like that. They didn't even involve that police officer in the meeting. Yes, there are other charges, in my opinion, that should be filed here. And I will definitely, definitely keep up with that. But I want to listen to this last cut here. Play that now. We've charged four counts of first-degree murder, which requires premeditation. And I am absolutely sure, after reviewing the evidence, that it isn't even a close call. It was absolutely premeditated. Absolutely heartbreaking. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to this episode. I want to ask that you share this show with everyone you know. This is an important episode for people to listen to, people to be able to make their own mind up. If you agree, if you disagree with me, please let me know. If you have other thoughts, please reach out and let me know. That's very important to me. I love, love, love communicating with you guys. I know this was a tough situation. It was a tough episode to talk about and to to look at. This is a horrible, horrible situation. If nothing else, it should remind us to hold those that we love closest to us and understand that no one has ever promised tomorrow. Keep your head up. Keep your head on a swivel. Make sure that you tell the folks you love and care about that you do love and care about them. Take care of yourselves. Take care of them. Take care of each other. Remember to stay educated in all that you are involved in. Education is the key. Stay active. And I will look forward to talking to you all again real soon. Take care. God bless. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Perception is Reality with Christopher H. Bilbrey. Bilbrey. Tune in, like, and subscribe at perception.fireside.fm. Hook up on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Bilbrey318. And on Twitter at PISRBilbrey. Email khbilbrey at gmail.com. Or get off your butt and call the show at 765-546-9796. Till next time, remember, perception Perception is is reality. reality. This has been Perception is Reality with Christopher H. Bilbrey, where we aim for better government through citizen involvement.